You're listening to Astroscope, astrology podcast by Mark Lerner and Great Bear Enterprises. This podcast is sponsored by Buzzword Consulting and Forfame.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to part three of the astrological secret of Star Wars. It is now the day after I did the first two parts. Yesterday was December 15 of 2019. Today is Monday, 2019. And as I'm doing this particular third podcast in this series, in Hollywood, stars have gathered for The Rise of Skywalker, the premiere in Hollywood. Later this week, as I said the last time, on Friday, December 20th, all around the United States, and I'm sure in other places around the world, either at the same time or fairly soon, millions of people will be going to see this ninth official Star Wars movie. Now, last time I read from 27 plus years ago in our pioneering astrological magazine, Welcome to Planet Earth, the Cancer, Leo, and Virgo issues, I ran a three-part series on the secret of Star Wars, and now I've updated the title to the astrological secret of Star Wars. We also shared a lot in that particular, those two podcasts about the birth of flying saucers on June 24th of 1947, the Kenneth Arnold sighting of nine dish-shaped objects near Mount Rainier. And the fact that Chiron, a planet or a small planet comet that was not discovered until November 1 of 1977. But in that chart back on June 24th of 1947, which I considered the birth of flying saucers, undiscovered Chiron was almost precisely rising in the sign of Scorpio. We also then shared the discovery of Chiron chart from November 1 of 1977. And lo and behold, the Chiron position on November 1 of 1977 at three plus of, of the sign Taurus was exactly opposite where it had been at the Kenneth Arnold sighting. So for various reasons, and now over quite a few decades, I have been exploring research about the power of Chiron. It's not only very significant in George Lucas's birth chart, but it was very significant at the birth of flying saucers and when Chiron was actually sighted, November 1 of 1977, not only is the actual discovery of Chiron chart, which we put out in the last podcast and located on the Great Bear website in our Mark Lerner Astrology Astroscope Zone of podcasts. So those charts are there for George Lucas and for the birth of flying saucers, as well as the discovery of Chiron. And I want to mention before we get into the subject matter this time, five different areas where Chiron is very important for all of us to understand. Now Chiron, and I shared about this last time, a, a fantastic book many years ago, Barbara Hanclough, Rainbow Bridge Between the Inner and Outer Planets about Chiron. Zane Stein, who had written for Welcome to Planet Earth many times about the power of Chiron. He is uh, published and is one of the great experts on Chiron. And I've done my own research thanks to so many other people in this particular field. So now one of the most important things, because although I shared the secret of Star Wars back 27 and a half years ago, where I focused on four of the main characters in the original Star Wars series and focused on what's called the mystery of the Cardinal Cross, 
of the signs Aries, Cancer, Libra, and, and uh, Capricorn. So that was part of the mission, kind of the esoteric spiritual energies of the force, of the four main signs that start the seasons and how the characters that George Lucas had created for Star Wars come to life and are telling us a story and they're connected to this whole concept of the force and good and evil and so on. Now, Chiron, who's a newcomer in terms of our understanding, because we've only known about it for now 42 years, this is the most essential part of the story. In 1977, Star Wars came out the Memorial Day week. It was, it was May 25, 1977. Chiron still hadn't been discovered. It wouldn't be discovered until November 1 of 1977. However, in the fall, as many of you may know who are older, Close Encounters of the Third Kind came out. And that was in a very important movie by Steven Spielberg. And in terms, I was a, a member of the Findhorn community in Northern Scotland. Many of you have heard about Fintorn. I've shared a lot about it on Coast to Coast Radio and in, in Welcome to Planet Earth. And when I, I came back for a short period of time, back to New York where I was living, and many of my friends and associates were either leaving Fintorn to do other projects around the United States, around the world, and they came through New York. And in Manhattan, there was an exclusive showing of Close Encounters. And so it turned out that this was really crucial. I brought so many different people and I watched the movie over and over again. Well, in the fall is when Chiron was discovered. So we go back to 1977. Star Wars comes out in the spring. Close Encounters comes out in the fall. And we have the discovery of Chiron. And it turns out that in the chart, even for Steven Spielberg, who's born December 18 of 1946, he's born with a conjunction of the moon and Chiron in early Scorpio, very close to where Chiron was going to be six months or so later when the birth of flying saucers occurred. So we know Steven Spielberg, close friend of George Lucas, and of course they they work together in so many ways on the, the various Raiders of the Lost Ark and the Indiana Jones movies. Uh, they're close friends. And when, when Star Wars, the first movie came out, they were both in Hawaii waiting to see what was going to happen during the first several days when the original Star Star Wars movie came out. So it turns out that Steven Spielberg natally has a very powerful moon conjunct Chiron. So he's tuned into the Chiron message, which has so much to do with rainbow bridges, twilight zones, uh, beyond the, the chronological world and what Zane, St Zane Stein has referred to as chirological time. Chiron has so much to do with shamans and mentors and healing, physical healing, psychic healing, spiritual healing, um, people who are very much involved in alternative medicine and holistic healing and exploring everything about herbs, folk medicine, uh, mon mandalas and affirmations and visualization, uh, yoga, and the list goes on. UFOs, ETs, pyramid power, ley lines, ancient civilizations, keys that open doors to higher consciousness. Now, Chiron is on many levels, is very active in all of our lives. Everybody has a natal Chiron. And when people turn 49 to 51 years old, we now know that everyone experiences a Chiron return. If you get to live to that particular point, there will be all kinds of issues relating to keys opening doors to higher consciousness or shamans or mentors or your spiritual studies. 
um, things that have to do with healing yourself and healing people around you uh, and studying things on a very vast level in terms of metaphysics, arcane kinds of things, and so on. So again, 1977 is a powerful Chiron year because that's when it was discovered. And these two extraordinary movies came out 42 years ago, one in the spring, Star Wars, and one in the, the fall, Close Encounters. And then that led to Steven Spielberg working a lot with George Lucas throughout their lives over the last four decades uh, in so many levels. Now, the other thing, again, is that Chiron was exactly rising at, at the precise moment. And that time is not um, a guesswork. Uh, the chart for the birth of flying saucers occurred at 2.59 p.m. That's when Kenneth Arnold had marked down on that day, June 24th, 1947, that he saw what turned out to be the flying saucers, the disc-shaped objects. So that chart is very specific and very powerful. So Chiron was exactly rising, even though we hadn't discovered it yet. Then what happens is we turn the clock for 30 years. We go from 1947 to 1977. And on November 1, Chiron is discovered by astronomer Charles Cowell in Pasadena at the Palomar Observatory. And we've got a, a fairly exact time of 10 o'clock in the morning there. And Chiron is then in Taurus, the opposite sign to where it was in 1947, making an exact what we might call full moon illumination or polarity or complementary energy field. So again, the discovery of Chiron itself, November 1 of 1977, connected to the birth of flying saucers with the Kenneth Arnold sighting seems to then validate Chiron of having these mysterious properties. Again, we know that it primarily orbits between Saturn and Uranus. It has a cycle of about 49 to 51 years. And we know that Saturn has always represented, among its many themes, chronological time, whereas Uranus, the first planet beyond Saturn, represents the door into eternity, into larger cycles. In fact, Chiron has an 84-year cycle, and then Neptune, discovered next, has twice that orbit of 164 years. Uh, then we also have Pluto, discovered in 1930 with a 247-year cycle, and then other planets that have been discovered now since, Eris, Sedna, and many others with much longer cycles. So also in George Lucas's own chart, and I pointed this out the last time, and there will be a part four to this series. I want to talk more about George Lucas. I'll leave that for another time. But the fact that he's actually born when Mercury is stationary, it's actually retrograde at his birth, a little bit over the horizon in Taurus, making a trine or a flowing harmonious connection to his Chiron in Virgo. So he has a very powerful Chiron, as does Steven Spielberg. And then um, finally, we will see at the end of this particular uh, part here, part three, I'm going to share, I don't even want to say it at this point, I'll, I'll share about it later, it'll come near the end, it's another story and it's not directly connected to George Lucas and the various films, but it is connected to something else that's very important. And again, Chiron plays a big role in that. So without further ado, what I'm going to share here are from the 1997 Aquarius Pisces magazine. We have the re return of George Lucas and Star, and Star Wars because of the fact that he put out at that particular point a digitally remastered editions of the the first three movies and then 
two years after that in our May-June-July 1999 issue, again another return of George Lucas and Star Wars because of The Phantom Menace, beginning at that point, the prequels starting to come in in 1999 over a several-year time period. So I'm going to read from both of these because it has more information about the power of George Lucas, the power of different planets, not just Chiron, all kinds of astrological happenings. Every time that George Lucas comes out or that Star Wars comes out into the public and kind of rekindles this whole energy field of the mystical, the force, spirituality. Um, George Lucas himself studied psychology. He studied Joseph Campbell and various mythologies and the collective consciousness of Jung. And so these stories that we see, these Star Wars stories, are on so many other levels than the fantastic battles of the mechanical starships and the lasers and things like that. Oh, and robotics, of course. All right, so here we go. This is from page seven, Aquarius Pisces, 1997, of a pioneering magazine, Welcome to Planet Earth, The Return of George Lucas and Star Wars. Who would have dreamt that the long-awaited Jupiter-Uranus conjunction in early Aquarius, February 15 of 1997, would find one of its most dynamic expressions through a return of the Star Wars trilogies of movies, 14 to 20 years old? Nevertheless, unless something else momentous occurs, and I'm writing this on February 5, 1997, during the next 12 to 15 days, it looks as though the key universal... Revolutionary happening of late January to March 1997 in the United States is going to be the excitement generated by the renaissance of three sci-fi mythic film masterpieces from 1977 to 1983. Why? Well, of course, as Jupiter and Uranus unite in the heavens at six degrees of Aquarius, there have been and are many planetary meditations going on, many global networking enterprises, movements to free the higher spirit of humanity, and so on. And remember that we have also been experiencing the rare cycle of Uranus and Aquarius, 60 degrees to Pluto and Sagittarius, an alignment energized last year and continuing into 1997. However, back in 1977, the genius of George Lucas and Steven Spielberg was released through the films Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And after these two fabulous movies were released to an enthusiastic public, open to the ideas of space travel, ETs, flying saucers, and communication with advanced civilization from other worlds, the comet-like celestial body Chiron, so strongly linked to higher dimensions, holistic healing, and divine consciousness, was discovered by Charles Cowell in Pasadena, California, November 1, 1977. The release of Star Wars on May 25, 1977 reminded the world that there was such a thing as the dynamic power of universal love, harmony, and at one mint. George Lucas called it the Force in his film And the Rest is History. Now in 1997, during the new Aquarian dispensation, Jupiter-Uranus union in this sign and dynamic Uranus-Pluto 60-degree pattern what better vehicle to rekindle the spirit of universal love, harmony, and togetherness than the reappearance on the big screen in several thousand movie theaters of Star Wars, the movie, and the presence of the Force? Naturally, there are uncanny astrological cycles, 
concerning George Lucas and the relaunch of the Star Wars saga. The Empire Strikes Back will be released on on Friday, February 21. Again, this is, I'm saying this now, 1997. Just before a potent full moon with Uranus and Neptune rising in our nation's capital, while the return of the Jedi is due back in movie theaters on Friday, May 7, 1997, just before a Pluto retrograde station and total solar eclipse. Out of many bizarre, extraordinary, and amazing astrological happenings, I want to emphasize three of them. Number one, on the day of the release of the re-release of Star Wars to the public, after almost 20 years, on January 31, 1997, the transiting sun at 11 plus degrees of Aquarius was making its precise annual crossing of George Lucas's moon at 11 plus degrees of Aquarius in his 10th house of career expression and public rec- recognition. The exactitude of this happening itself is remarkable. But remember that the sun rules illumination and enlightenment, and the moon signifies images, memories, the silver screen, and mass public consciousness. While George Lucas and 20th Century Fox hoped for a positive weekend response totaling around $10 million, they were astounded when tens of thousands of filmgoers waited long hours to see Star Wars and brought into the studio coffers over $36 million, a weekend record for any January film release. The solar aquarium transit to Lucas's moon is also made more significant when we note this quote from Peter Shernan, president of the News Corporation in charge of 20th Century Fox. Many people have already seen Star Wars on video, but people are saying that there's no duplication for seeing it in a movie theater. There's no substitute for that communal, and that's my emphasis at that point, that communal experience. Precisely. That word communal sums it all up. The reason flocks of young people and baby boomers went to see the latest Star Wars rendition on the big screen is the desire to capture that communal, universal, at one Aquarian-like, New Age experience. And the fact that the Jupiter-Uranus conjunction was just about to occur iced the cake, cosmically speaking. Point two, George Lucas's own secondary progress chart, where each day after birth equals a year of living. The great film director was experiencing a rare, once in, once every 30 years, progressed full moon. Therefore, this time period, early 1997, is the climax, fulfillment, and apotheosis of George Lucas's life in the cinema. This secondary progressed full moon for George Lucas occurred in early January 1997 at 14 degrees of Cancer and Capricorn. His progressed sun at 14 degrees of Cancer and progress moon at 14 degrees of Capricorn. When Mr. Lucas was asked about the overwhelming response to the re-release of Star Wars over the January 31st weekend, his, re- his reply was, quote, I'm flabbergasted, unquote, and, quote, I'm questioning reality, unquote. P.S. The progress full moon for George Lucas is also conjunct the USA sun placement and the zodiacal position of the brightest star in the heavens, Sirius. Now, point three. But perhaps the most unique astrological fact in this whole strange situation is the following. When George Lucas was born on May 14, 1944, his natal Jupiter-Uranus midpoint, the point in the zodiac where his Jupiterian and Uranian energies merge and mix, 
was 13 degrees and 15 minutes of the sign Cancer. Thus, while all this film hoopla over the three Star Wars movies continues in early 1997, and a Jupiter-Uranus conjunction in Aquarius lights up the skies, the first Jupiter-Uranus union in Aquarius since 1914, by the way, we realize that a magician-like film director who has captured the imagination of millions of computer-savvy young people in America and worldwide for over two decades has his natal and permanent Jupiter-Uranus midpoint energy field precisely on top of the USA sun degree, 13 degrees and 18 minutes of Cancer, from July 4th of 1776, which is the Declaration of Independence, birthday of America. Do you see the elegant beauty and astounding simplicity of this equation at this time? Again, continuing this read from early 1997. Once again, here are the facts. The USA sun from July 4th, 1776 is located at 13 plus degrees of the sign Cancer. We, humanity and spaceship Earth, are experiencing a rare Jupiter-Uranus union in Aquarius in early 1997, and everyone is wondering how it will manifest. Out of the blue, the Star Wars trilogy is re-released to the public, and it swamps the competition, reigniting a public fascination with space travel, communication with other worlds, the Force, of universal love, harmony, and right use of willpower and intuition, and profound mythic archetypes associated to good and evil, right and wrong, faith and fear, lo and behold, the creator of the Star Wars trilogy is born with his Jupiter-Uranus midpoint, precisely on America's sun, our life force, heart center, core power station. Thus, George Lucas becomes the, Ju the Jupiter-Uranus agent pr provocateur par excellence, influencing America in early 1997 during the Jupiter-Uranus conjunction in Aquarius, his own moon sign in the house of public recognition, honor, and prestige. Back on May 25, 1977, when Star Wars was first released, it is shocking to realize that George Lucas's progressed sun at 25 plus degrees Gemini was exactly crossing his natal Saturn, fate, father, fear, authority, and that was in his second house of money, assets, personal values. In many ways, Star Wars, written and directed by George Lucas, reveals the creator's fascination for the ultimate tragic, negative, and dark father figure, Saturn, in the guise of Darth Vader. The first Star Wars release in 1977, mostly in New York and Los Angeles, only occurred on 43 screens and brought in about $1.55 million during its first weekend. This is not a huge sum of money, but it was an important and positive financial seed, a stepping stone in 1977. The entire Star Wars series of films connected business, businesses, toys, Disney rides, and so on, has earned George Lucas hundreds of millions of dollars in the past 20 years. So there is much to be said in a positive way about a secondary progressed sun conjunction to natal Saturn in the second house of money, and that, just so you know, was in bold italics, written... 22 years, 22 plus years ago now. It is noteworthy that when the first movie appeared on May 25 of 1977, Jupiter, success, prosperity, was at 11 plus degrees Gemini, while Pluto, vast wealth, deep, deep core truce, was at 11 plus of Libra. If you simply connect these two places in air signs to George Lucas's natal moon at 11 plus degrees of Aquarius, you have a perfect grand trine in air signs. In addition, Saturn, 
representing focus, hard work, forms, and structure on May 25, 1977, again at the release of the first Star Wars, Saturn was located at 11 plus degrees of Leo at the exact midpoint of transiting Jupiter and Pluto and directly opposite George Lucas's natal moon at 11 plus degrees of Aquarius. This is another example that to people who work hard and have enormous discipline, Saturn in transits and or progressions can be a wonderful friend, asset, and ally. There is much more to the astrological story of the current Star Wars phenomenon. We see series, see the rest of my Star Wars articles following this one. Again, this is, I'm making a point right now. I already shared that in parts one and two about the, the power of series, the largest asteroid, and the connection to George Lucas, and that George Lucas's son at 23 plus of Taurus is exactly the discovery position of Ceres from 1801 when Ceres was discovered. Okay, back to our story. We see Ceres, and this is pretty astounding here, we see Ceres at zero plus degrees of Aquarius as Star Wars is re-released to the public. Now let me pause here. In my 17 podcasts that I started this past May of 2019, focusing on Pallas, Athena, and the United States Sun by secondary progression in a conjunction, I started sharing about what's going to happen next year. In 2020, we're going to have Jupiter and Saturn conjunct at zero plus of Aquarius about a year from now. That's going to start Jupiter-Saturn 20-year cycles in air signs, a great mutation from Earth signs to air signs. There's also going to be, at the end of March of 2020, and I've shared this a few times in other podcasts, Mars and Saturn together, which is not an easy combination at all, also at zero plus of Aquarius in 2020 at the end of March. We're also going to have Pallas Athena itself make a station and go retrograde in May of 2020, where zero plus of Aquarius. So here, 22 years ago, when George Lucas becomes flabbergasted, because he puts out a re-release of all the Star Wars movies, and instead of earning $10 million, now that would not be a whole lot of money, as we know in terms of gross grosses of films, but he's they're expecting $10 million, and it brings in $36 million, and everybody goes wild. It turns out series, which was so linked to George Lucas from the beginning, the whole idea of the destruction of Alderaan in the first movie is connected to the destruction of series or whatever the large planet was in our solar system that became the asteroids millennia ago or millions of years ago, whenever it occurred. Back to the storyline. So we see Ceres in 1997 at zero plus degrees Aquarius as Star Wars is re-released to the public. Zero plus degrees Aquarius is the spiritual awakening zone of the New Age experience. And as you will see in the following report, Ceres, the largest asteroid, is a big player in the life and destiny of George Lucas. Again, I reported that in the last two podcasts. When the third Star Wars movie comes out on March 7, 1997, Jupiter will start crossing 11 plus degrees of Aquarius, George Lucas's natal moon, during March 11 to March 17. Who knows how many millions of people will have been touched by the force again by March of 1997. And how will this re-energizing of communal love and spiritual understanding in America and around the world influence the evolution of humanity as Jupiter and Uranus merge their cosmic energies in the new age sign of, of Aquarius? It is important to realize that the next Jupiter-Saturn union, now again, in 1997, 
that was going to happen May 28th of 2000. So that's my writing at this point, 22 years ago. It is important to realize that the next Jupiter-Saturn union, May 28, 2000, at 22 plus of Taurus, starting a dynamic 20-year cycle in religion, finances, government, and social change, will occur within one degree of George Lucas's natal sun at 23 plus degrees of Taurus. And he is preparing his three prequel movies concerning Star Wars for a launch in 1999. Very clearly from the astrological angle, George Lucas and his universal Aquarian vision will be a force to be reckoned with as we turn into the next millennium and the beginning of a new thousand-year epoch. Note, because of the profound influence of the re-release of the Star Wars trilogy at this time, and this is this is what, what what's so intriguing. I am reprinting with just a, a few small changes the entire three-part series, The Secret of Star Wars. I ran and welcomed Planet Earth in 1992. So I won't I won't continue with with all of that uh, because I've already shared that in the previous two parts. And then I went on um, to give some places online where people could find information like StarWars.com and some of these other places. Okay, so that that was an introduction called The Return of George Lucas and Star Wars for the re-release, the digital re-release, 22 and a half years ago. It was in our magazine, and I just read from that. And now we're going to go forward to the point in time two years later when the actual, the actual situation occurred where Phantom of, um, The Phantom Menace came out and then would be connected to the other prequels which are really the first three of the entire story. So now I'm going to read, this is a little shorter, but I'm going to read again something called The Return of George Lucas in Star Wars, but now it's two years later. It's 1999. Okay. Remember Leonardo DiCaprio on the Titanic in the movie of the same name shouting, I'm the king of the world? Well, move over, Leonardo. There's a new top authority in the cinematic realm. He's pretty much been lord and master of the massive Star Wars kingdom for over two decades, and now George Lucas is about to be crowned king of the movie world in 1999. Many people are wondering if the new Star Wars prequel, The Phantom Menace, opening May 19th of, of 1999, will outgross money-wise Titanic. It is likely to do so, at least when all the proceeds are counted globally and via video cassettes. Uh, let me make a point here. Did you hear that, video cassettes? Remember those? Okay, it's not, this is from 20, year, 20 plus years ago. Back to the story. In the previous stories in the series, I've discussed the extraordinary spiritual astrological connections to George Lucas, his characters, the actors in the Star Wars movies, the power and inner meaning of the Force, and George Lucas's incredible link to the discovery of Ceres, the large asteroid, and the previous destruction of a planet in the asteroid belt of our solar system perhaps millions of years ago. Now we note the following. The new movie is being released during the week that Uranus is stopping in Aquarius, and I put that in bold at that point. Uranus rules the media, widespread publicity, universal themes, futuristic explorations, aviation and space travel, advanced and revolutionary discoveries, and the high-tech wizardry so perfectly expressed by Lucas, Lucas's firm, Industrial Light and Magic. Lucas himself is born at a Uranus return for America at 8 degrees of Gemini. His natal moon is in Aquarius in the 10th house of career, profession, and achievement. He has just experienced his second progressed lunar return, in last fall in Aquarius, and his progressed moon is at 19 degrees of Aquarius, just two degrees from the current transiting placement of Uranus. 
His progressed Mercury, representing communication, information, knowledge, is at 24 plus degrees of Cancer, is exactly conjunct the United States Mercury from July 4th of 1776. Now this is all happening, as another point of reference, in 1999, in May, when the, when the Phantom Menace comes out as the first of the prequels that will then come out another one three years later and another one three years later, so that by that point, which if my math is correct, by 2005, with the three prequels out, they would have been movies one through six of the Star Wars because the first movie, the Star Wars, was number four, then The Empire Strikes Back was five, and then The Return of the Jedi was number six. Okay, back to the story. Already here, so um, his progressed son, this is again in 1999 spring, his progressed son, 16 plus degrees of Cancer, is finally closing in on a con conjunction with his natal series at 17 degrees of Cancer, an aspect which becomes exact early next year, perhaps when the next Star Wars film is being created. Again, Lucas has a remarkable rapport with the Asteroid series, which I have explained fully in the previous articles. On the day of the release of The Phantom Menace, the trend, which uh, May 19th, 1999, apparently was the opening date. On the day of the release of The Phantom Menace, the transiting moon, the public, and late cancer is exactly crossing George Lucas's natal north node, which is a destiny point, a uh, very significant one in any person's chart. By the next day, May 20th, the transiting moon conjuncts his natal Jupiter. Success, prosperity, good fortune, acclaim. Either Lucas knows astrology or someone is giving him good astrological advice. When will George Lucas be pro proclaimed King of the Movie World, August, September, 1999, for sure. And let me get, I have to turn the page here. Bear with me. At the total solar eclipse of, of August 11, 1999, the sun and moon united 18 plus degrees of Leo. That is the precise placement of Jupiter when George Lucas was born. Again, let me make a point here. Back in 1999, even in Nostradamus from the 1500s, his quatrains, there was a tremendously powerful um, total solar eclipse on August 11th of 1999. And for many centuries, people were alarmed, could this be the end of the world? Because Nostradamus had indicated this was going to happen right before the year 2000. And then through astronomy and knowing how exact everything was, there was a big buildup. We did a whole focus in Welcome Planet Earth and many other places around the world. We're kind of in great trepidation about the August 11th, 1999 total lunar eclipse. Again, back to the story. The sun and moon united in the summer of 1999. Again, this is only a few months after the Phantom Menace came out and had broken all kinds of records around the world. So that 18 plus degrees of Leo where the sun and moon met, that is the precise placement of Jupiter when Jupiter, when, excuse me, when George Lucas was born. And then on September 10 of 1999, Venus turns direct after six weeks of retrograde motion. It's exact zodiacal position, again, 18 plus degrees of Leo, right on George Lucas's natal Jupiter, the mythological king of the gods. Chiron is another big player in the life of George Lucas. It is located at nine plus degrees of Virgo at his birth in the creative artistic fifth house and trying to Mercury and Venus and Taurus. It was also close to a station when he was born. 
Chiron in Virgo in the fifth house perfectly expresses the vision, expertise, and wisdom of George Lucas as translated into his remarkable Star Wars films and his production studios at Industrial Light and Magic. As The Phantom Menace soars at the box office in the first weekend, in its first weekend, May 21 to 23rd of 1999, Uranus will be exactly stationary while the transiting moon in Virgo crosses Chiron and the birthmark for George Lucas and also conjuncts the USA Neptune in Virgo from July 4th of 1776. When the moon enters Libra on May 24th, 1999 and crosses the director's natal Neptune, his imagination, vision, film, spiritual path, it will be interesting to note how many people have visited American movie theaters in the past five days to see his latest production. May the force be with you. And then I mentioned that we would probably have an update at some point, and I don't remember at this point whether we did an update or we didn't. Okay, uh, I have some remaining time, and here's the extra bonus that I wanted to give. And it's very significant, and it, I, it's a short story, but it's about, um, it was a cover story for our September, October, November 1997 edition with a giant flying saucer over the White House with the title UFOs, Colonel Corso Rewrites History, 1947 to 1997. I'm sure a lot of you know, if you're into UFOs and ETs and everything, you'll know what I'm talking about. The book, The Day After Roswell, um, Colonel, the, the title of what I wrote was Colonel Philip J. Corso Retired Rewrites History, UFOs, 1947 to 1997. This is controversial because a lot of people, uh, he, unfortunately, he passed away the following year. He was 82 years old when his book came out, this blockbuster, The Day After Roswell. He was on, on Coast to Coast AM, which I have been on after Art Bell left that show and George Norrie took over. I've been fortunate to be on Coast to Coast AM since August of 2004, so the last, what is that, 15 plus years maybe 25 times, thankfully, um, offering ideas about mundane or earth astrology and other subject matters related to finance and business and politics and social activities and unusual events. Uh, well, Philip Corso came out with this incredible book, The Day After Roswell, which was he, he co-wrote with, with William Burns. Um, there was a forward at that time by Senator Strum Thurmond. And also on the cover of that book, it says a former Pentagon official reveals the U.S. government's shocking UFO cover-up. And at the top, it also says the truth exposed after 50 years. Um, I watched an interview. I'm, I'm, ad I'm adding this right now before I read you what I wrote back in 1997. Um, I watched an interview by an NBC correspondent of Colonel Corso that was so... Uh, derogatory and demeaning, it, it, it got, it made me very upset. And the other thing I want to share about this is when I wrote this story, we only knew that um, Philip Corso was born in 1915. We didn't have the exact date. And my, my dad was born in 1915. And so I was able to go back into the ephemeris and realize that a lot of the energies, my father was also in World War II and the storyline of Philip Corso, who worked with Eisenhower and fought against the Nazis, it evoked not just my father's uh, 
being born the same year, again, my dad was born in April of 1915, and I didn't know when I wrote the story when Philip Corso was born. Later, we found out he was only born like six weeks after my dad, May 22nd of 1915. Um, and so I'm sharing both his his uh, solar birth chart, um, which is appearing with this part three, Philip Corso, as well as the exact death chart, which was given out in an obituary, the exact time of when he died. This is a little over a year after his book came out. He died of a heart attack. And what was ironic and also synchronistic relative to my father, my father was ill and my and we were from New York and my, my dad and my mom had retired to Florida and they were living in Palm Beach. And Philip Corso was rushed to the hospital in Palm Beach and to the Palm Beach Hospital. And this was close in time to when my, my father also had medical problems. So again, my dad was in the army in World War II. He was born in April of 1915. Then Colonel Corso comes out with this book. He had been in the army. He was born in 1915. And then when he dies, and this is so shocking, he dies in July. There is an exact date and time, and it's given on a Great Bear website. Um, and he winds up being transferred to Jupiter ironically, Jupiter, Florida. Think of that, Jupiter. And Jupiter is actually stationary when he dies. Jupiter, the planet in the sky, is stationary. Um, Philip Corso was born at a Uranus station when Uranus was not moving in the sign of Aquarius. I'm born at a time like that. I highly respect everything I read about Philip Corso. Hearing him, he was on Art Bell, I believe it was July 23rd of 1997, seeing the interview, hearing the quality of his voice. At any rate, I'm going to read you this story, and it, and it sort of tucks at my heartstrings because of the connection with, to my father, and also my uncle, my dad's brother, who was five years older. He actually was in the war in Europe, like Philip Corso. My dad was in, in, um, in the army in the Pacific. Okay, so I'm going to read this story. A lot of people try to debunk everything that Philip Corso wrote about because it's so specific about aliens and about incredible kinds of things. So when I read you the rest of this, if you're not familiar with the story, it'll be pretty amazing. But again, as you review things, if you go into Google and Safari and other places and you try and look up Colonel Philip J. Corso the day after Roswell, you're going to probably find a lot of places where people are trying to say, oh, he was a liar, he was trying to make money, he did this and that. The guy was 82 years old. Um, why would he lie at this particular point? Why would, he, why would he hold on to all of these ideas from 1947? And then, then 50 years later, you know, finally, I mean, think about it. He was born in 1915. Well, well share the story here uh, because of what happened at Roswell. He would have been only 32 years old. Um, after World War II, a 32-year-old guy. And that reminds me also, we tend to forget now that we see George Lucas and he's in his 70s, but fundamentally George Lucas is 75 years old. Uh, if he shows up on any of the TV screens now this week with, with um, The Rise of Skywalker coming out, um, he's 75. But when George Lucas created Star Wars, he was 33 he had just turned, let's see if I got this right, 1944, came out in 1977. So, um, yeah, he was 33 years old. And probably one of the, the fortuitous things was he had just had a solar return because his birthday is May 14, 1944, and the first Star Wars came out 
May 25, 1977. And people are often a lot more uh, vitalized and energized right after a solar return, right after one's birthday. People are more energized just in general than right before your birthday. Just keep that in mind when you're studying solar returns and things like that. By the way, we do have in our in our report uh, section of our astrology shop, there are solar return reports that you can order. Last time I plugged for the first time, I'm not much of a self-marketer advertiser, but I did spend a few minutes, and I apologize for that, but uh, in the last podcast about some of the things on the website that are entirely free and the other kinds of things, particularly reports, that can really help all of you um, tune into your charts, your progressions, your transits, and so on. Anyway, here's the storyline. So this was the September, October, November 1997 issue of a pioneering astrology magazine, Welcome to Planet Earth. And when I'm done with this, we'll be done with part three, and there will be a part four uh, at some point, hopefully in the near future. Okay, here's the story. Back in our Sagittarius Capricorn 1996 edition, page five, I issued a report about Chiron approaching two plus degrees of Scorpio in 1997, the same placement it held when the Roswell UFO crash occurred in the New Mexico desert during the first week of July, 1947. The article I wrote discussed the fact that with Chiron returning for the first time to that two plus degree Scorpio region in 1997, I fully expected an inundation of UFO ET type stories, events, happening, happenings in America and around the world. What I didn't expect was the extraordinary book, The Day After Roswell, pocketbooks, hardcover, written by an 82-year-old retired colonel of the Army, Philip J. Corso. Note, my research over many years has implicated Chiron as a major astrological player in the UFO ET movement. More on this in a future edition. The month of June 1997 was filled with magazine articles and media specials on the coming 50th anniversary of Roswell. Of course, the media always treats the subject with disdain and cynicism. This became amplified by the strange crowds making a pilgrimage to Roswell itself for the 50th anniversary. I had read various accounts of the supposed Roswell crash of an alien spacecraft, but never felt anyone had touched on the central truth. And I was about to give up all hope of ever finding out what happened when I heard on the Art Bell late night radio program about this book. The, the Day After Roswell, written by someone who was, quote, in the know, unquote, someone who was definitely not a kook or weirdo. I immediately called the local Barnes & Noble bookstore and requested a copy. In July, this is again 1997, close to the time of the 50th anniversary celebrations, I picked up my copy. Editing and publishing Welcome to Planet Earth magazine keeps me busy, so I don't usually have time for a lot of extra reading, but I really felt it crucial to read this book. It did not disappoint. The main reason the day after Roswell was so important is not because of its focus on UFOs, ETs, and aliens. It is that Colonel Corso has rewritten the fundamental history of the Cold War epoch, 1947 to 1997. He clearly shows that the advanced technology discovered at the very real crash site from July 1947 has become, quote, seeded, unquote, to major American corporate giants such as Dow, Bell Labs, IBM, Use Aircraft, etc. over the past 50 years. In fact, in the early 1960s, Colonel Corso, who had already been a member of President Eisenhower's National Security Council in the 1950s, inherited what he referred to as his junk drawer, 
a cabinet or file containing alien artifacts, gadgets of out-of-this-world material, unknown oddities, and important blueprints all going back to the Roswell 19, uh, the Roswell UFO crash in the New Mexico desert some 50 years ago. Colonel Corso tells a fascinating and riveting story. Through his narrative, by the way, he did personally view deceased alien beings in strange cam- caskets while in charge of a can- Kansas military outpost, Fort Riley, in July 1947. We learn that so much of the Cold War rhetoric and arms build up against foreign powers, quote unquote, in the late 1940s, 1950s, and early 60s was actually a camouflage operation. We, the U.S. government, knew we were fighting an alien force, monitoring our movements, and through the crash at Roswell, we were beginning a long process of developing lasers, integrated circuit chips, fiber optics, quote, night vision, unquote, goggles, particle beams, and a whole host of advanced technological marvels. In other words, we had found items and materials at the crash site that we didn't understand. Now it would be up to the greatest minds and companies within America to figure out how these high-tech components could advance our civilization, keep us a few steps beyond the Russians and Chinese, and prepare us for a potential battle with alien beings not necessarily all that friendly. Colonel Corso, this is important, I'm just adding this now, Colonel Corso has no reason to lie and put out a book of fiction and hearsay. The book contains a foreword by none other than Mr. Right Wing himself, Senator Strum Thurmond. The colonel, as well, was a political conservative and dedicated American military man his entire life. We do not yet know his birth date, which I mentioned. We do know now, May 22, 1915. We do not yet know his birth date, but since he himself reported his age as 82, on the Art Bell radio show, we know he must have been born in the second half of 1914 or the first half of 1915. That tells us something right off the bat. In late 1914 to early 1915, when the colonel was born, Uranus was an early Aquarius. Thus, he is now experiencing his Uranus return. This always occurs when a person reaches 83 plus years of age. Aquarius is the sign of advanced air technology. Uranus is the planet of shocks, revelations, topsy-turvy conditions, startling insights. One of the most remarkable parts of the book, page 66 for me, was when Colonel Corso referred to army contacts with the famous scientists Werner von Braun and Willy Ley, V2 rocket designers from Germany who came to the United States after World War II. And now this is important. i got to turn the page here. Sorry. When I saw... The name Willie Lay, which is spelled L-E-Y, a flood tide of early childhood memories rushed into the forefront of my consciousness. As a kid, my favorite books were about rockets, spaceships, and travel in the solar system and beyond, all written by Willie Lay. I had never seen his name in print or heard about him, one way or another, for the last 40 years. Now his name pops up in a book about an alien spaceship that crash-landed in New Mexico in July 1947, a crash that has resulted in the complete high-tech transformation of the American and, to a great extent, world society. Beyond Colonel Corso's Uranus return, we see that Chiron, now in early Scorpio, is closely trining, which is a favorable, harmonious alignment, his natal Pluto at the beginning of Cancer. Chiron refers to the rainbow bridge of higher consciousness and the ageless wisdom teachings. Scorpio connects to the mysteries of life. Pluto is the ruler of the underworlds, unseen dimensions, and invisible realms. In mythology, Pluto Hades wore a helmet that made him invisible. 
So it is not surprising that this would be the year, Chiron exactly trining his Pluto, that the colonel would blow the lid off the most extreme governmental cover-up of all. The third outer planet, Neptune, also gets into the act at this stage of Colonel Corso's life. Neptune has an orbit around the sun of 164 years. Half of that cycle is 82 years. When the colonel was born, Neptune was between 27 plus Cancer and 0 plus of Leo. We now know, I'm looking at his chart now, that it was at 28 plus of Cancer on May 22, 1915. So, um, thus, Neptune is now, in 1997, when I was writing this, is opposing that placement, thus in a full moon type relationship. In other words, Neptune in the sky was exactly opposite his Neptune when he comes out with this revelatory book, The Day After Roswell, uh, that the full moon type illuminating polarity or opposition of Neptune to its own position. This can sign, and this is true for anybody, okay? If you reach 82, if you reach that age, You'll, every person, no matter where Neptune was at your birth, Neptune will go opposite its own position. It's a powerful alignment, and it's not always very easy health-wise and in other ways. But if people are tuned in on higher levels, it can be very spiritually illuminating. Back to the story. This, this Neptune opposition Neptune can signify waves of confusing publicity, trying to undermine his views and knowledge, or an apotheosis of celebrity on the national and global stage. Note that in the USA birth chart we have always used here at Walking Planet Earth for America, Neptune is at the Midhaven in the sign of Virgo, perhaps the most prominent position in any chart. I heartily recommend that all our readers obtain a copy of The Day After Roswell. If you have ever been wondering whether there really was an alien crash at Roswell, this is the one book you should read. Early on you will see that Colonel Corso is a sensible, normal, and deeply patriotic American. Without fanfare, he tells one of the greatest stories of this or any age. It is a tale that will change how you look at life and is a reminder that the advanced technology we're utilizing all the time now, computers, satellites, fiber optics, lasers, etc., are literally gifts, perhaps frightening gifts, from the, from the cosmos, accidentally offered to us by a highly evolved alien civilization. Now, that's pretty much the end of our story for this time. I want to just say, though, that one thing in the death chart that you don't realize when you look at it, unless you're reading an ephemeris, this is the chart of death for Philip J. Corso, uh, July 16 of 1998, at 11.15 at night, according to his obituary in Jupiter, Florida, not far from Palm Beach, where my parents were living, Chiron was stationary during that time. So we find another full kind of cycle here. The extraordinary nature of things like here's this person who was born at a Uranus station. I'm born at one of those myself. So my dad being born six weeks before this person, my dad and uh, this amazing person who was a conservative patriotic American working in the armed forces. When you read the book, you can see all the things that he did and you know the responsibilities that he had. And one more note here, you know, we're at a time now where so many of our, sure, there are a lot of reasons to go back and look at what the FBI did and the CIA of overthrowing governments, particularly the CIA, you know, in the 50s and 60s and other times, all kinds of uh, shadowy things that our government has had to do, our Central Intelligence Agency 
and in the decades when uh, J. Edgar Hoover was in charge of the FBI. But a lot of things have changed since then. And when you have countries um, like Russia, and before that as the Soviet Union, and China, and um, countries like Syria now, North Korea, and so on, the United States has to maintain a strong intelligence. Now, it's they're not always working correctly, and I will share more about this whole issue of the deep state, and I have something to say, I want to say about all that at a, in a future podcast. But for the time being, I find it very disturbing that people who have served the country, um, a lot of people who forced into the, uh, into the uh, by draft and so on, so many people didn't go into the armed forces, but the people who fought and died and the people who have, the veterans who have been injured and the people who have spent decades serving the country, um, there's a, a, there's a disparagement that's going on by people in the United States government at this point. And it just seems very shocking that this is occurring at this particular point. Things that you, you look at and, uh, even though, again, the United States was responsible for a lot of problems, particularly in the Iranian area. We, I will probably share more about that another time and other kinds of things in undermining foreign governments. At the same time, um, there are real problems with nuclear energy and so on. Now, I will be getting into all of that with a whole series of other podcasts based on writings I've done even further back than this, going back to uh, 30 going back to 1982 and 1983. So there's something I need to share from 37 years ago. Uh, what I've been sharing here is from 20 to 22 years ago. And then in parts one and two of the astrological secret of Star Wars, I went back to 27 plus years ago in uh, 1992, those three, three first articles on George Lucas and Star Wars. So again, ending with this third part with the life and death of, of Philip Corso, where he dies when Chiron is stationing. He dies um, in Jupiter, Florida, ironically with that, with that uh, planetary name of that city in Florida, when Jupiter itself was not moving or stationary in the sky, which seems another unusual synchronicity. And in fact, Jupiter was rising at the time of his passing. One other thing, because I've it may sound like a morbid subject, but the whole subject of studying the death charts of major figures around the world, if one knows when different people have passed away, that that chart of, of death, when we look at it in a different way, can tell the story of a person's life. So when we're born, that chart is kind of, this, this is what we hope to accomplish. It's a roadmap spiritually and mentally and emotionally and physically of what we hope to accomplish, kind of like a, a blueprint, a, uh, a genetic code of how we can accomplish our life purpose. And when we die, we're making another statement to the universe of this is what I did with all the energies I was given at my birth. And so we do have an exact birth chart for the passing of, of Philip J. Corso, and it is quite powerful. So I've just given you a few components. There's a lot more that you can study and you might extract from both his death chart and at least the the sunrise type chart for May 22nd of 1915. Apparently he was born, I thought this was a mistake, in California, which is one of, one of there's actually a couple of towns named California in the state of Pennsylvania. And I don't know if I have the right uh, 
county, but he's born in California, Pennsylvania, in one of those three towns in the large state of Pennsylvania on May 22nd, 1915. And uh, I don't know the time, but at least we have now a solar birth chart and his passing. He's very significant to all of this. And I also think one other final point, hidden within all the Star Wars movies, and now, of course, you know, we have the ninth movie coming out this week. So it's going to be another extraordinary end of, uh, well, winter solstice. By the way, um, in two days, it's the birthday of Steven Spielberg, who was born December 18 of 1946. And there's some references years ago that put him his birth in 1947. And that's wrong. He's born in December 18 of 1946, which is about two and a half years after his friend George Lucas in May of 1944. Uh, so Steven Spielberg is about to have his birthday and turn 73. And George Lucas is two years older and now 75. So those two guys are getting up there in the years. Um, okay, so we will have a part four. There's something um, I hadn't studied ever before about George Lucas. And even though his Lucas film was sold to Disney in 2012, and there are some problems or challenges between his vision and where Disney has taken off the last in the last three movies. We have the greatness of George Lucas through his vision to have created all of this in the beginning. And even though Disney is now doing it, and I'm sure, you know, for the crowd that is watching Disney, it's going to be very entertaining. It may not be what George Lucas had wanted for these three particular episodes, but, uh, you know, with some younger people and other actors and actresses, it's an extraordinary story. And I'm sure the force will be with everybody this coming Friday, Saturday, Sunday, when it's released and for many weeks and months into the future. Okay, so may the force be with all of you. Lots of love and blessings to everybody. These three parts are quite a story and eventually there'll be part four. Thank you very much for listening and bye for now. Mm -hmm.